Well, I think most of you know me by now, but for those who don't, my name is Vincent. I'm more typically found in the traditional service, which is just over there where Andrew is this morning. It's absolutely lovely to be with you all. Um, being from the traditional service, I'm not very tech savvy, so there are no slides. I'm so sorry about that. <laughs> now, it's been a very, a very troubling week, obviously, with the things in Sri Lanka. Um, it's a, a very hard week for the church as a whole, a week in which we have had to draw deeply upon the promises that we do have in the risen Christ. And I think as we look at our passage today, we are going to be helped to draw in different ways deeply on those promises as we, as we join these disciples on the road to Emmaus. Well, it is now still Sunday, the first day of the most wonderful week of human history, the week of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And it is turning out to be so far to all appearances, a total disaster. We have already heard in the previous sermon of how despite the women seeing the stone rolled away and the body gone, the disciples did not believe. We've heard of how presumably angels appeared dazzling to them and told them plainly, he is not here, he is risen. Remember, he told you that when he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise, told plainly, but still the disciples have not believed. Even when Simon Peter saw the marvelous sight of the linen cloths by themselves with no body, they have not believed. And so not believing, their hearts growing cold and their spirits dead, they start to scatter back to the world from which he had once called them. They had hoped that he was the redeemer, the one who would save them. He had seemed so mighty, so wise in every way. He was working wonders, but now he is gone, dead and buried. Despite all that they had seen and heard, nothing now seems to remain but to move on, to forget about it all, to forget about their hopes and get on with the life of this world. And perhaps they are like some of us, even here today, a little bit. Perhaps there are some of us here today who, having heard the very same things that they heard last week, have already started to go back to the world in our hearts. Perhaps you'd raise your hand if you haven't. It's true, I know, that some of us here today are here with hearts that are still filled with hope and expectation, but I fear that for many, it is not the expectation of seeing the risen Lord Jesus. It is the expectation of seeing some pagan story about a man with a magic glove and an overgrown bug. <laughs> Perhaps we've already run with joy to see him, or even worse, stolen him through the internet. Not that Avengers is evil in itself, but if... <laughs> If this has become the big, exciting desire in Christian hearts this week of all weeks, then maybe there is something 
that is seriously wrong. And it is not just the box office which can bank on us walking back to the world this week. There are the pornography sites that so many have visited this week. Don't need to put up your hands. <laughs> can you imagine anything that more clearly says we are lusting after the things of the world than running after pornography? Was it not the spirit of holiness who raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead? I fear that sometimes we're the most fattened, most slothful, most self-obsessed people to call ourselves by the name of Christ. Sometimes it seems our God is our belly, our zeal is a show, and our real hope is still in this world. Forget about the Apostles' Creed. The creed our lives confess is so often that we believe in a university education and a career success and owning a home and securing a pension and let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Sometimes fear that we have already returned to the world so fully that a new convert amongst us would find very little they would need to change in their lives to fit in with God's people. And I say this to our shame. But I also say it to remind us that like these first disciples, and perhaps even more than them, there is a danger of us scattering back to the world from which he called us. Here in Luke's Gospel, if you remember the sermons over the past few months, we have been seeing Everything is a journey, a pilgrimage, if you like. You might remember in chapter 9 of Luke's Gospel, he calls on his disciples to follow him on a journey. He says to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he ends that chapter, setting his face to go. To Jerusalem, a journey he has been on from chapter 9 until our passage today, to go to Jerusalem, where he will die to redeem the world from its sin. And so it is, do you see, when we see these two disciples on that very day setting out away from Jerusalem again, it is not just a practical picture. They wanted to buy something in Emmaus. It is a theological picture. It is a picture of them leaving the way of the cross back to the world. And as Luke shows us this, he in a way invites us to join them there as they walk towards the village of Emmaus, some 11 kilometers from Jerusalem. We read that one of them is called Cleopas. The other one is unnamed and ungendered, and perhaps if you felt I was talking about you earlier, you might imagine that you are that other disciple walking on the road to Emmaus. Because if that is you, then you need to hear what they're going to hear just as much as they did. It is now, it must be, sometime in the afternoon, and they walk on, and there is only one topic of discussion, verse 14, they are talking with each other about all these things that had happened. Perhaps they're saying, do you remember the great work he did, how he cast out the demons from the man, or, oh yes, do you remember, 
those he healed, the blind he made to see. Do you remember the lame that walked? Do you remember the dead were raised? Do you remember his great teachings? How he sat at his feet, how he broke bread with us that last time. We can only grasp at the depths of sorrows that must have filled their hearts when they remembered such sweet memories, but with them, flashbacks of the same man on the cross, naked and nailed, racked with pain, bloodied and bruised, the stuff of nightmares itself. Talking of these things, they walk on, faithless, and hopeless. Then something amazing happens. The Lord Jesus himself draws near and goes with them. For the reader of you, Luke, although we know that the tomb is empty and the stone is rolled away, this is actually the first time that we have seen the risen Jesus. He is really risen. He's here with them. And doubtless we are anxious for the disciples to look on him with their sad eyes, to turn their sorrow into joy, to really know and to believe. We want Jesus to kind of jump around in front of them and say, hi guys, I'm back, I'm here, believe. But he doesn't, because that is not his plan. For as we read, as we read, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He does not want them to see him now with their eyes. He wants them to see them in a far more important way. He wants them to learn to see him clearly by the eyes of faith through the word of God. Mark this well. It is indeed good to see Jesus Christ in the flesh, but it is far better to see him in the word. You might remember in John's gospel, Jesus insists to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It is by the word and not by the flesh that he plans to win the world for himself. To help them see that, he interrupts their discussion and he asks them, what is this conversation you're holding with each other as you talk? And at this they stop their sad faces showing the sorrow of their hearts, and Cleopas answers, saying, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? It's logical to assume on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus that, that this man has come from Jerusalem too. And the question is, is plain as well. How could he not know the city has been in an uproar about Jesus, that things were not done in a corner that they could be denied? Jesus draws them still closer. He says, what things? So they explain the things on their hearts, sorrowfully piling one upon another. Verse 19, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. How our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came back saying that he'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. What, what is that apart from information overload? It is. Well, have you ever done one of those join the dots things? Where you join a line from dot to dot and in the end you get a picture? That, that was all the dots but not joined up. All the pieces of the puzzle, but still in a pile. And perhaps that's true of someone here today too. Perhaps we are here clutching all the pieces about Jesus in our hands, but it's not enough to stop our feet dragging us back to the world. We look at the pieces, we shuffle them around, but they don't quite fit. We've got to the end of Luke's gospel, and yet somehow he's, he's not here. Yet we had hoped that he was the one to redeem us. Where is he? If that's what we're feeling, then take heart because he is far closer than you know. For what does he say? O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Is this not the reason that they're walking from Jerusalem sadly that resurrection Sunday that their foolish hearts have not believed the writings of the prophets? Is that not why their hearts have not seen him? Is he not there? As he asks, was it not necessary for the, that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted it to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is remarkable. What is happening here? Here, the incarnate word, the author of life himself has humbled himself once more to take on the lowly role of a preacher. Notice this is no sermon like the Sermon on the Mount. This is not fresh revelation from the Lord Jesus. He does anonymously. What preachers are called to do even today, he opens up the scriptures and shows them Christ. That is to say, he uses the ordinary means of grace by which he continues to draw his disciples to himself in all generations. Just as Philip would do with a eunuch, just like Peter would do at Pentecost, just like Stephen would do at his martyrdom, and like faithful preachers still do today, he showed them from the scriptures the things concerning himself, that they might find him surely and clearly there. Now, it must have been such a blessed time for them to hear these things from the Lord, wasn't it? And perhaps we wonder, then why didn't Luke write it down for us so that we could hear all these things too? Or if you've been paying attention to the sermon series through Luke, in a way, he did. Week after week, we have heard Luke pointing us faithfully back to Jesus from Moses and all the prophets. From the first chapter of Luke until the last, there are more than 60 references by which Luke points us to where we will find Christ. If we will believe all that the prophets have spoken, then we will find that Christ reveals himself to us there. 
Even in that sorrowful lament, the information overload, Christ is there. Let me sketch some of that with you. They said he was a man who was a prophet, mighty. That is, as Luke has already shown us, he is the prophet like Moses, the one about whom the father says in Luke in chapter 9, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. He's there. And was he mighty in words? Luke's already shown us how we understand the mightiness of his works. Luke 4.19, he points us back to Isaiah 61, where the Lord confesses, The Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those oppressed. He's the Lord and the Savior of Isaiah, isn't he? And, and when we see the mighty works that he does, what has we already heard from Luke? Luke 7.22, he is the one of Isaiah 35. He is the one who comes with God's recompense to save his people. He is the one by whom the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. If we believe the prophets, then even in those few words, a man who was a prophet mighty in word and works, we see him there. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is, in fact, God himself, mighty to save. And what of that lament of how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him? What has Luke already shown to us? Luke 19, 38 and 2017 speaks of him, the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, the the stone that the builders rejected that has become the head of the corner. Psalm 118, in all the prophets. Was it not therefore necessary that he should be first rejected before he is made the cornerstone? Was it not also necessary that he would be the sacrifice at that same feast? Who is it who is betrayed? by his close friend who eats his bread, Luke 22, 21. It is the king who we first meet in Psalm 41, the one who must first suffer before being upheld and set in God's presence forever. It was necessary for him to suffer and enter into his glory again, that he would be crucified. Lucas pointed us again and again and again to Psalm 22, where we see him there. The king forsaken and scorned and mocked, pierced in hands and feet, lots cast for his clothing, and then receiving praise in the great congregation as he turns the nations to worship the Lord. One more. Do you remember Luke 22 and verse 37, where the Lord insists that he must fulfill scripture and be numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53? What does Isaiah 53 speak to us about? It speaks to us of the one who is high and lifted up, the one who dies for the transgressions of the people, the one who is taken away by oppression and judgment, the one who bears the sins of many, 
and then prolongs his days and shares the spoil. And do you remember our Old Testament reading? Isaiah 52. The reading in which God so richly promises that he will redeem Israel. What does God say straight after Isaiah 52? After he promises to redeem them, he sends that servant who Luke has said is Christ, who does it. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, and, and he has, not defeated by his death, but through it. And not only that, for the same prophets show us that it was too light a thing for him to bring back the preserved of Israel. So God made him a light for the nations that his salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Dear brothers and sisters, if we believe all that the prophets have spoken, then we will see there, to our joy, the risen Christ our Saviour. We will see suddenly that the account that the women brought of an empty tomb is not an idle tale. We will see that his promise to rise again on the third day is not strange, for it is exactly what the prophets have shown us. I suspect the two disciples on the way to Emmaus perhaps wished that that sermon would be one sermon that would never end. But it did have to end. For the next thing we read is they drew near to the village to which they were going. Jesus, still unknown to them, acts as if he is going further, and yet they urge him strongly to stay, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. Some commentators see here a beautiful picture of their desire that Jesus would stay with them, to abide with them because the eventide has come. It is a very pious picture, but it misses the point. They do not know it is Jesus when they seek him to stay with them. What they now strongly desire is to keep seeing Jesus through the word. That's what the plan had been from the beginning, hasn't it? that they, like us, would see him best of all as he reveals himself in the scripture. And that being done, he, he seals the truth by showing himself to their eyes to verse 30. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. The end of our encounter here is really beautiful, isn't it? The meal speaks of, of peace and fellowship with them. They had been scattering sad and despondent. and In truth, actually, they hadn't been alone. He had been with them all along. And he reveals it at the end as he breaks bread. Must have been a wonder, must have been a deep comfort to their hearts. But I want us to notice that that was not the big point of the encounter. For first of all, as soon as they recognized him, he disappeared. This kind of seeing Jesus in the flesh is, is temporary at best. 
And secondly, do you see where they immediately turned? They turned back to the scripture. Verse 32, they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They thought back to where they would now always be able to find him in the word, where they would always know him with eyes of faith. And what is this burning of their heart that they mention? It was, at the least, the invisible work of Christ in them by his spirit through the word. It was most certainly new life to their souls as as they found Jesus there. And I think it is fair to say, although you, you may differ, I think it is fair to say that it was, in fact, the moment of their conversion itself, their new birth to a living hope, through a true faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, a new life to live to his glory through the word. Some of us here today might be like they once had been, We might be people who know so many facts about Jesus, but lack that fire within. The truths of the gospel, yes, we agree with each one of them, but somehow they have not become the truths of our hearts. But knowledge about Jesus is not faith in Jesus. True faith in Jesus, saving faith in Jesus starts with this, with personally turning from trust in the world to place our hope and trust in him. If we're here today and we're feeling that perhaps we are, we're kind of worldly Christians, little different to the world, then let it be a challenge to us because perhaps we are like those on the road, people who know things about Jesus but are not yet Christians at all. That is us. Then the answer has been given already. He has pointed us to the scriptures. He has called us to find him there. Like the noble Bereans to seek him in the Old Testament that he might show himself to us. For as Paul says, faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of God. You notice this. It did not say their hearts burned within them as, they, as he broke bread at the table. It did not even say their hearts burned within them as their eyes were opened and they saw him in the flesh. It says their hearts burned within them as he talked to them on the road while he opened to them the scriptures. There in the scriptures is where they truly knew him and loved him and trusted him. And there... If we seek him, we will love and trust him too. See now, with this new faith, everything changes for them, doesn't it? They rise, we read, that very hour to go back to Jerusalem. If we're thinking of the motif of of pilgrimage, joining him on the journey, it is a picture now of, of repentance. It is urgent repentance to go back again, Remember before they ate their meal, they were complaining it's too late to travel any further, but now even later, they insist on going back without delay. They will not delay themselves. So full of faith, 
full of true faith, having seen Jesus in the word, they rush to find the other disciples, and, and, and they find them, already gathered with their own news. The gathered disciples are saying to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon, and now they can add their own good news. They speak of what had happened on the road and how he was, how he was known to them in their breaking of their bread. This was God's plan. In his perfect plan, the empty tomb, the witness of angels, the resurrection appearances in the flesh were not going to be enough without the greatest part of the revelation, the heart-igniting revelation from Moses and all the prophets of the Christ. The passage leaves us today with a loving call for us to join them there and find him, to come back from our own wandering into the world, seek him there. He calls us, come and see, come and find him afresh in Moses and all the prophets. Find their faith to overcome the world where he meets us still. Dear brothers and sisters, the resurrection appearances, they were important, but they came and they went. But the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the word remains forever. Seek him there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wondrous way in which your Son, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ, revealed himself to those two disciples through Moses and all the prophets. We thank you that through that you ignited their faith and drew them to truly see him and trust him and love him and, and hurry back to the way of the cross. Thank you that through those same scriptures we can see him today. Pray, Father, that you would indeed, by your Spirit, keep revealing your Son to us here, that through seeing him in the Word, you would give us the strength we need to stay on the way of the cross, not to fall back to the world, to keep journeying with Christ, following him through suffering even until the day he comes again and brings us into glory. And pray, Father, that you would do this mercifully. In Jesus' name. Amen.